can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we continue our studies through the Gospel of John. Just a brief introduction where we ended last week. We finished the section we had been in, the first 17 verses of John 15. And the message last week was unconditional love. That God's love for His people is not based upon any condition that we could ever meet. That's good news, isn't it? Because we can't. And we saw from the Scriptures the relationship between what He said about no longer being a servant, no longer being a slave, and the relationship between that and now we've been called friends. But not only friends, we've been made a part of the family. We've been adopted into the family of God so that we are children of promise and not slaves. And the relationship between that and God's sovereign election in salvation. We worked these things out together last week. And so this morning, I'd like to ask you to stand with me at this time to read verses 18 through 21, if you're able. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. We'll read together and then pray once again. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to go with me in prayer once again to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are desperately dependent upon you now to come and meet with us in a mighty way. Oh God, I praise you for the sense that many of us have had of you ministering to our hearts and the singing of these songs. Oh Lord, we need you. If we are to rightly understand your word, we need you. And not only that, oh God, I I'm convinced that understanding your word is not an end in itself, that we would not only understand these truths, but in order that we might actually know you in an experiential way. Oh, God, I pray that you would guard me from misspeaking, from misrepresenting you. And oh, God, that you would not only grant power and authority, but that you yourself would be the one to speak to us. Oh, Father, I tremble and I ask that you would do these things for your own glory. In Jesus name. Amen. The title of this sermon, as you'll notice in the bulletin, is a world at war, a world at war. I've got some introductory thoughts before we get into our text that I think are going to be significant. What is the explanation for the world as it is? How do you explain the world as it is currently today in this generation? Matter of fact, in order to answer that question, maybe we should first ask, what is the state of the world currently? 
I suggest that if you look around, that you're not going to be primarily gripped with great expressions of love, joy, and unity, are you? It's not what we see, and it's certainly not what we see on the horizon. And in John 15, what we've been reading, the context up until this point has been telling us some things. That true love, true joy, and true unity are only possible to those who are united to Christ by faith. Reconsider these verses briefly. From John 15 and verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so if a person does not come to know the love of Christ, how can they love other people in this way? The fact is they can't. And the same thing goes for joy and peace and unity. Verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So we look at a world around us that does not have love, joy, and peace, and unity, because they don't have Christ. They don't have this very love. They don't have this joy. And from the fall of man in the beginning, this world has been continuously, without exception almost, Ravaged by war, by strife, hatred, and evil. And that's the state of the world even yet today. I want to ask you this. In, in, In the introduction, let me ask you this. Do you expect that the warring that exists in this world is going to end in this life? Do you have a hopeful expectation of seeing the end to war? The end to strife and suffering? The end to conflict between people? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 6 this, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Do you hear what he's saying? So long as the end has not come, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be conflict and strife. And as a matter of fact, you can pretty much categorize the entire world by warfare. Do you notice this? How many of you recall when you think about studying history in school? What are the common reoccurring themes in the history of the world? As a matter of fact, how do we usually date history? Do we not think back to, well, that was around the time of this war or that war? Wars are so prevalent in the human history that that's how we measure history by. And so I ask What is the root of all this warfare? James chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 tell us this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what causes war? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The root. What is the root of this war? Is it not these passions, lusts, greed and sin and a desire for the world's goods? I would submit to you that there would be no war in the world if it wasn't for a longing desire for money or sex or esteem or earthly comfort. All these things, they tempt us 
as a result of our rebellion to God. Now, I maintain that from the major clashes that we see historically between nations to even your own private relationships with your spouse, with your parents, the issues that you have, conflicts with your children, conflicts with your co-workers, conflicts with your neighbor and even your dearest friends, conflicts come as a result of always the same root thing, and that is sin. Now, I ask you, Am I giving you an accurate depiction of the world today? Is this, are these things which categorize the world around us? Now, we may know a measure of peace from time to time, but ask yourself this question. Is it not when the point when our deepest cravings are threatened that a war and assault arises against the one threatening them? Do you find this to be true in yourself? You could be happy and enjoying time with your spouse until they say that one thing that challenges what you want or the direction you want to go or what you had in mind. And there's this stirring within you and there's going to be a clash. This is the root of war on an individual level and on a national level. And I'm wondering, do you look around our world right now? Do you see the stirrings of war? Do you anticipate, even in our country right now, do you anticipate a clash soon to happen? Do you see these things coming in our near future? And my question to us is, are you prepared to honor God unwaveringly in the days ahead? That all by way of introduction, we see in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, perhaps we are prepared to acknowledge that warfare does exist in the world, but what is the unique explanation for why the world is at war with and hates Christianity? That's the point of what Jesus is saying. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, in order to understand that, I want to challenge you to reconsider the basis of this warfare. You recall with me in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, that the serpent, Satan, comes to Eve and says this, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see the temptation in this? This is where the clash arises. This is the temptation. The serpent comes to the woman and is tempting her to eat this fruit. Why? So that you can be like God. So that you can decide for yourself what's good and what's right. And I suggest to you, I'd more than suggest, that the prevailing worldview today is that man is autonomous. You understand that man is ultimately the one in charge of his own life, that each individual person gets to decide for themselves who they can marry or when they can die or if they want to pay a doctor to kill them early so they don't have to suffer a little bit longer or whether they're a boy or a girl, etc. Now, I maintain that most people in this generation agree with uh, Henley, who wrote the Invictus poem that they would say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of of my soul. Now you see what this relationship this has to do with war, with conflict. This is the very reason why there is war. You see, the great difficulty within government structures has always been to try to allow each person to express, express their own autonomy without threatening the autonomy of others. Now that's a pretty empty and vain and futile attempt, wouldn't you say? You see, essentially human autonomy itself is the evidence that every person in the world wants to be God. They want to decide, they want to know and decide for themselves what's good and what's evil. And I know there are many people that would deny this, 
But surely it must be evident. You see, the, the proposed mighty will of man, I, I would say, is the greatest farce in the entire world. And it's also the greatest cause for strife, for warfare, for conflict. You see, if here's the picture I'm painting for you. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll get to decide what's right. You'll get to be the captain of your own destiny. Essentially, if we're all little gods, are we not bound to come into conflict whenever our goals and our desires are threatened by other little gods? If we're all autonomous, if we all get to decide what's right for ourselves, eventually there's going to be a confrontation whenever another god's desires confront my own. This is the reason for the strife, the hatred. Now, somebody might hear what I'm saying and they might ask, are you, am I suggesting that the principles of freedom and American liberty are bad? Surely we praise God that we're not controlled or forced by some dictator, at least not yet. We're not forced by some dictator into what we can and can't do. Is that not a good thing? Well, I would say absolutely it is. But remember that we as a nation here were founded as one nation under God, under God, you see, free men and free women are only ever going to live peaceably if they live under God. And the moment that people are no longer living under God, they shake off the shackles of God's moral confines that are on them. You're going to have strife if every person is their own God. If every person decides for themselves what is right, it leads to warfare. If the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now you come in to see a little bit why it is that the world hates Christianity. It is this. It is because the central theme of the Christian message is a message of the king with the kingdom. You follow what we're saying here. We have a king. We have a God who's in charge. And we're calling people to recognize the sovereignty and rule of another over them. You see, the world, those who hate you in the world, Jesus says, know that they hated me before it hated you. The world hates Christianity because it hates Jesus Christ. Consider this. Consider the cause of Herod's hatred of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, you can just take that down or turn there if you want to with me. But Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read a lengthier section for you and let this settle into your heart and mind. Beginning in verse 1. Of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Do you get the picture that's going on here? Herod hears this report. There's a king. King of the Jews has come. He's been born. His authority is immediately threatened by the authority of a king. He doesn't get to be God anymore. There's one in charge of him that's come into the land. That's what he's concerned with. And he tries to trick the wise men into telling them. Well, then God protects the Lord. He protects him even as a child by sending a dream to these wise men so they don't tell him. And we continue reading verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see the point here? Herod wants to destroy him. He wants to cast down this other authority that threatens his own. Verse 16, we continue reading, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, for she refused to be comforted because they are no more. The death of all these little ones brought about by one man's refusal to submit to an authority outside of himself. This is the picture of the entire world and it's not limited to Herod in this text. Consider from the call to worship from Psalm number 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you see why the rulers of the earth are upset with the Lord? Because He has, as they put it, cords upon them, has bonds on them. In other words, they can't do whatever they want to do because of what God has said. They are not allowed to remain autonomous so long as the living God is telling them how they must live. This opposition to God and God's authority comes from the striving after human autonomy. They're raging and plotting against him for that very reason. The announcement of another king had reached Herod's ears. His authority has been threatened. And I maintain he's not the only one to reject Jesus for the same reason. Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable in order to rebuke those who are sitting in judgment over him and over other people that they deem less than themselves. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 19 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Fascinating parable that we don't have time to go through all here this morning. But I challenge you to go and read this description, this parable Jesus tells about those who refuse to be ruled and reigned over. Verse 27 of the same chapter, conclusion of the thought, Jesus says this, but as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, 
Bring them here and slaughter them before me. You see, the source of all hatred and all warfare is human autonomy. And those who are opposed to God, they reject Jesus because they will not have him to rule over them, just like the folks described here in Luke chapter 19. And when Christ's followers, when you and I as Christians, when we proclaim this message, Jesus says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me. When we proclaim the message of his kingship, then, then we should not be surprised. We should expect to be rejected and hated even as he was. Now, if as Christians we simply try to coexist with other people who believe differently, we keep our convictions concerning Jesus to ourselves, you know, you might escape the hatred of the world for a while. And Jesus has not yet, he's going on to do so, but in our text, he hasn't actually gotten to this reality of our proclaiming his word and saying what he said. He's just at first saying, if you're a Christian, if you just live as a Christian, you're going to be hated by the world. But we're moving towards the idea of this proclamation of truth. But I, I, I suggest to you that even if you do try to coexist with people who believe differently, even then, after a while, there's going to be a hatred that comes against you. Your very life unto God, lived unto God, is a rebuke to those who are not. Those who don't live after God are going to be challenged by the fact that you do. Surely we've all experienced this with our family and friends. When you stand on something and you say, I believe this is what God would have me to do. Whenever they hear you say that, for them to go ahead and go and do it, that's a rebuke to them. It's a challenge to them. Have you ever been invited by someone to take part in something that your conscience was not clear to do? If you say, no, I can't, I'm sorry, I believe that's wrong. All of a sudden, they're going to come after you. Well, are you saying that I'm wrong? Are you saying that God doesn't like it when I do this? Well, I'm saying I can't do it. You see, even just living unto God is going to bring about the hatred of the world. And the point we're seeing in this, this verse, this first verse we're looking at, is that those who hate Christians are not ultimately hating them individually. The world hates Christians because they hate Jesus and they're set in opposition with his people. Consider this from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. This is the state of the world outside of Christ. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You hear this? Who's Saul persecuting here? Who has Saul sought letters to go and bind and breathe out threats and murder? Does it say in the first verse? Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Jesus confronts him and says, you're persecuting me as you go after my people. You're going after the ones I love. It's the same as coming after me. As a matter of fact, you're going after them because you hate me. That's exactly why Saul was doing this. To try to snuff out the message of the way. To snuff out Christ. So he goes after his people. Jesus says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
You see, that's what's being told to us. Jesus says, if the world hates you, it's because they hate me. And then he continues on into if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, that's a probing statement, isn't it? Is that a challenge to you here today? Does the world love you? Does the world receive you as its own? Is the world okay to get along with you? According to Jesus, if the world loves you, it's because you're of the world. If people that don't know Christ, that are separated from Christ, if they are pleased to spend great amount of time with you, Jesus is saying it's because you're of the world. This isn't coming from me. This is the Lord saying this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Luke 6, 26, Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do all men, do all people speak well of you? Now we're going to consider the other side of this in just a moment, but don't, don't rush away from this without sitting under it for just a moment. Does the world love you? You see, there is a declaration of woe, of damnation upon those who are loved by the world. Did you hear the same thing in the introduction from James? James saying that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. The same message throughout this book. You see, I heard a preacher say recently that the problem with preachers these days is that no one wants to kill them anymore. I don't want to be killed. But that's challenging, isn't it? There should be a fearful expectation of judgment upon those who find that the world loves them. Now, I can already imagine someone ready to argue against this. There are even verses in the Bible that people will try to misuse in order to try to contradict Jesus here. Someone who loves the comfort that the world brings and they love the esteem of men. They love the praise of those, even those who don't know and love God. They'll try to use the scripture, for example, Romans 12, 18. That says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And they'll say, listen here, you don't be telling me that I can't have friendship with the world. I'm supposed to live with friendship in the world. That's not what that verse is telling you. Not at all. As a matter of fact, rather than contradicting Jesus, Paul is actually affirming what he says. Do you see that? He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul recognized the impossibility of living at peace with a world that hates God. If you have a hope of living at peace with a world that hates God, that's a vain hope. A vain hope. What Paul is saying is in light of the hostility that the world is going to have against you as a Christian, you live peaceably. You don't be the one initiating the warfare. You proclaim the truth of God and you be faithful to God, but you don't be the one trying to bring about this warring and this confrontation in that way. In spite of those who are opposed to you. If you live faithfully to Christ, the world is going to hate you. And if you're faithful to His message, they're going to hate you. The charge to us is to go on loving them even as they hate us. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't say try to avoid their persecution by not living faithfully to me. 
Whenever Paul says as much as it depends on you, he's not saying to the neglect of faithfulness unto God or to the neglect of speaking the truth in love. He's saying as much as you can. In other words, he's assuming it's not going to be easy to live peaceably with people if you're faithful. It's going to be difficult to have peace in the world if you're faithful. Now, let me make a qualification here. I'm talking a lot about the hatred of the world. Did you know that the one who brings temptation into your life, the one that leads your eyes away from Jesus, the one who tempts you to be satisfied with what the world gives you, even if they're the nicest person in the world, they're hating you. They're hating you. If they try to take your focus and gaze off of Jesus Christ, that's not love. Just be clear about that. Oh, there are a lot of nice people in the world, a lot of kind people that want good things for you, but not the best thing, not Christ. This is the difference. The world hates you. Unless you're one of its own. The last part of verse 19 says this. Jesus says why this is. He says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. You see, Jesus gives us in verse 19, the last half, a much needed reminder. Something we discussed really quite a bit in the Sunday school this morning. Think about the context surrounding what you're being told here. In light of the fact that you're not of the world, humility demands that you remember the reason that you're not of the world. You see, if you're going to be facing people that are opposed to you, opposed to this message, opposed to Christ, and it's only going to increase in the days ahead apart from some some genuine outpouring of the Spirit of God on this land. It's only going to increase. How is it that you're going to be able to look at the world that hates God and not begin to slowly Develop a little bit of an arrogance in your attitude towards the lost. To look at them and look down on them as though you weren't once exactly where they are. Jesus says, remember this. I chose you out of the world. The reason you're not of the world is not because of something you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. That's what he's reminding them. You see, if any person is inclined to boast about how much better they are than those who are in the world, I'm inclined to think they're still in the world. If you look at others who you say, look at that person over there and all their wickedness. Are you have you been called out? Paul writes and says this way. What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Listen to this illustration as well from Luke 18, Luke 18. On how it is that we've come to not be. In the world and what our attitude must be. Luke 18, I'll begin reading at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says the world's going to hate you and you be humble about it. You realize that the reason you're not of the world is because of what Jesus did. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world, not because of anything good in you. There is no room for boasting. There's nothing more necessary to remember when you face the opposition from the world than the unconditional grace and sovereign election of God. Move forward into verse 20. John 15 and verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now the context surrounding this original reference that Jesus makes here, I believe, sheds some light on the reason that the world hates us. This is where I said we're moving into the proclamation. It's not only the way that we live that makes people in the world hate us. It's what we say, and particularly what we say to them. You see, Jesus, He says, remember the word that I said to you. In other words, I said this before. Well, if you look back to the original context of John 13 and verse 16, this is what He said. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Do you catch the meaning? you catch the significance of that in this text? You see, this sets us up for the last half of verse 20. The reason why the world hates Christians is not primarily because they remain silent. The world hates Christians because they have been sent as messengers. That's what he said originally, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He sent us as messengers. Christians are those with a message to proclaim. And the world hates our message because they hate the one the message comes from. In keeping with that thought, we move very smoothly right into the last part of verse 20. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see, our greatest concern in all of this, our greatest concern as we face a world of strife, hatred and warfare, is not whether or not the world receives us, loves us or even likes us. As you look to the days ahead in this life, as we're serving God in this world, our concern, our interest should be delivering the word of Christ as his messengers. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. Now, let me ask you, do you or I have a word for the world apart from what he said? I don't. I have nothing to say to the world outside of what Jesus has already said. And not just preachers, but all of us are called in some way. To be taking this message, this word of Christ to the world. That's why the world hates us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. You see the point in this. We must be faithful to proclaim His word. And if the world is changed by and receives his word, then they're going to receive us. There's going to be a relationship and unity and friendship and fellowship if they receive his word. But if they reject his word, there's not a message on earth. 
that can change them. There's nothing that can produce in them what the words of Christ must produce in them. This is why the world hates us. Why the world is at war with Christianity. Now we look together at our last verse today, verse 21. He says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We see we end somewhere near where we begin. The ultimate cause of all this hatred, of all the warfare in the world, and especially, particularly against Christianity, is because, as Jesus puts it, they do not know him who sent me. They don't know God. They don't love God. They're actually at war with God. Now, far from a message of discouragement, there may be some here today thinking, it's not real hopeful. You're telling us if we're faithful, it's not going to be good. It's not going to go well with us. We're going to suffer for it. Well, I believe verse 21 is a great source of encouragement to see and know that our suffering is to be for the name of Christ. Suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. What does he say to us? James chapter 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, all joy, count it joyful, consider it a good thing when you face trials. Now, if you're out there facing trials because you're an ignoramus, I don't have a message for you. But if you're out there suffering in trials because of the name of Jesus, well, I've got great encouragement for you. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffer. Jesus says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. It's his name. It's lifting his name. That's the reason. That's the cause. Paul says it's been granted to you. God has gifted you suffer. Not only has God gifted you faith to believe. He's gifted you. He's granted to you to suffer for the name of Christ. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There is a blessing. This is not merely a promise for blessing down the road someday when the suffering's over. There is a blessedness and a joy that comes by suffering for Christ. Whenever you come to realize this, when you face suffering, when you see someone that you, you know they're going to despise me and reject this message, and you share it with them anyways, you know what that forces you to do? It forces you to value and esteem Christ and proclaiming Him more than the praise of the one you're talking to. All of a sudden, you're forced to see Jesus is more. He is better than whatever I might benefit if I keep my mouth shut. There is a blessing in the suffering because you've been forced to see He is that pearl of great price. He is the treasure hid in a field that you'll sell everything for. Suffering produces that in you. The Lord Himself said in Matthew 5, 10-12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not only is there a blessed benefit in the moment of the suffering for Christ, 
There is an eternal reward in the suffering. There is something far better that awaits. Now the final emphasis that I want to draw from our text comes from the overarching context of John 15. What would you say would be the one word summarization of all we've looked at in John 15 up until today? Do you not suppose, I'll tell you, if you go look at the last three sermons at least on Sermon Audio, all three of them have the word love in it somewhere. And that's not a coincidence. Look in John 15 and see which word you find the most. It's a close run between the word abide and love repeated over and over and over. And in light of that, do you suppose it's any coincidence that this Christian love has been the theme of all we've been looking at, particularly in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. How is it that Christians are to find support, encouragement, and stability in a warring world such as ours? Especially when there's hatred and and enmity with those in the world against them. Do you see how critical it is, how how necessary it is that we love one another in the body of Christ in the midst of this warfare? God has given us a body of believers to lift us up, to buoy us and give us strength as we suffer for Christ's name. That's exactly what Paul's writing about from Philippians, from the jail. He's saying, I'm in prison and I want you to be encouraged. Paul is loving them to help them to be able to face the same kind of suffering, to encourage them, motivate them. That's what Christian love does. You see, the unity and love that exists in the body of Christ is one of the greatest remedies for the discouragements that come from a hateful world. Personally, I can say when the world hates me, when the world despises and rejects me, I know some people that weirdly enough love me. They don't reject me. They don't despise me. They love me because they love the same Savior that I love. There's a relationship here that's unique and special as opposed to the world. And we as Christians need that from each other. We need fellowship from one another. We need that love as we face this opposition. You see, the love and fellowship of Christians is an indispensable treasure. Now, as we move to close, what do we say to the person here today who finds themselves to be of the world? What's the charge coming to you today if you're hearing all that I'm saying and you find the world does love me and actually, ultimately, I really don't like it, the idea that God's in control of my decisions. I really don't like it that God tells me what I can and can't do. What's the charge God gives to you today in light of that? Are you still with enmity towards God, boasting in your own right to determine your fate? Have you come to see yourself pictured perfectly by Herod? You hear of one who has an authority over you and you seek to destroy any kingly rule above your own. Do you see your sin and rebellion to God as an evidence that you will not have him to rule over you? Remember the the end of that parable Jesus told those who would not have him to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them. What do I have to say to you? Just get ready, your slaughter's coming. Is there anything more for you than that? Do you see yourself like unto Saul of Tarsus, even in your righteous, self-righteous efforts to serve God? Do you know that's what he was doing? Saul was persecuting the church in the name of God. 
He thought his religious service was pleasing to God all the while he was living in enmity with God. Imagine yourself like Saul, just upon your high horse, trotting down the road towards Damascus, carrying out your own desires, your own plans. That's you. And yet the whole while you're completely at war with God, completely opposed to the king. The king. There's no coincidence that Psalm 2 says, you rulers of the earth, kiss the son in his wrath. You better bow before this one and find mercy from him while there's mercy to be had. And here you are, riding like Paul, opposing God. And all of a sudden you look up and what do you see? What have you been hearing and seeing this morning? But you see this very king you're after that you're against and he's coming after you. What do you think went through Paul's mind? Saul of Tarsus mind when he's knocked off his horse and starts hearing this voice asking him about Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The jig's up. If, if this Jesus is the one I've been persecuting all along. Well, I guess this is the end of Saul of Tarsus. Do you see this? There's nowhere you can run or hide from this king. And as he's coming upon you, you may try to escape, but you cannot. And the moment, the moment that that great light shines out of heaven and reveals to you the error of your ways. And, and the moment that you expect nothing but to be blasted from existence and cast into hell. You hear this king say to you, come unto me. Wait a minute. You didn't say be gone or be destroyed or to hell with you for all of my rebellion. He says, come to me while it is yet day. Come to me, he says, the mighty sword of the spirit of this king. It pierces your heart and you realize you realize the very last thing that you expected, the thing you never deserved has happened, that this righteous, sovereign king has borne your wrath. Born the wrath you deserved in order to save you. Saul of Tarsus, he came to know that, didn't he? He came to know the salvation of God in Christ. It's interesting the way these things come full circle. I want to read two more scriptures to you and then I'm going to wrap this up. But listen to these things from 1 Timothy. It's the first one I'll read. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Hear what Paul has to say about himself. And what he came to know to be true. Beginning in verse 12. Paul writes to Timothy and says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed. There's that word, brother, of abundance that we heard this morning. This abundant grace, it overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Now listen to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul met the king. 
He realized who the king really was. And it wasn't Paul. It wasn't Saul. And in light of this salvation, in light of this any and all suffering, that's the context of John 15 here. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. He says in light of that, that, that knowledge of the salvation in Christ, bring on whatever suffering. Let it be. Let it come. He's worth it. He's worth it. You know, immediately. It wasn't like God, after years and years of theological study, Paul finally, God finally told Paul, you know, you're going to have to suffer a little bit. Do you know, immediately, as soon as God called Paul, he, he saved him, he showed him who he was, he showed him that he was forgiven, immediately, in Acts 9 and verse 16, God told him about the suffering that he was going to face. He says, the Christians are worried. Saul's been converted. They're thinking, oh, it's a coup. It's a ploy. He's really just trying to sneak in and kill us, probably. God has to tell them, no, I have done this work. And they're arguing, in a sense, questioning God. He says this in verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. If the world hates you for the sake of your king, and for the name of the king, let it be so. Let it be so. The charge is repent of sin. Repent of autonomous rebellion to God and His will. And believe the gospel that says Jesus came for rebels, for sinners, for those opposed to God. That He pursues them and saves them. He apprehends them that they might be reconciled to God. And the charge to every Christian under the sound of my voice now is like Paul. Go serve your king. Serve him who's been given a name above every name. The one whom God has exalted above all others. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That I'll ask you now to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, I thank You for Your mercy and for Your grace. God, I ask that You would so stir our hearts to live for You. Lord, not that we seek out in either self-confidence or arrogance confrontations with people. But oh God, let us not be afraid of men. Let us not avoid those who are going to oppose You. I pray for the grace to live in this way and trust You and see the joy in serving You as You've called us to. Lord, keep these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.